detailed Old Testament account of the work of the Lord's Messiah. And I think it's also one of the greatest evidences of the divine authorship of the Old Testament because it was written over 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth came into the world, and yet it records in very specific detail uh, details about His life, death, and resurrection. Uh, the theme of this section in Isaiah 53, of course, is the Lord's servant, and uh, this is a prophetic and poetic song about the premier servant the Lord will send into the world to do His work. Uh, there is one of these servant songs back in Isaiah 42, and we looked at that a couple months ago. You can find another one in Isaiah 49, and then the third one is in Isaiah 50. And all of them together contain important prophecies about this servant the Lord will send. The problem is, though, the first three contain some mysteries. For instance, how exactly will the servant of the Lord bring salvation uh, to the ends of the earth as prophesied in Isaiah 49? We know He'll do it, but how precisely will He get that job done? How will that happen? Or why will He give His back, <clears throat> excuse me, why will He give His back to those uh, who strike Him? Why will He give His cheeks to those who pluck out His beard in Isaiah 50? That's not explained. And the beauty of this fourth servant song that we're in, in Isaiah 53, is that it answers those questions. It is the most complete of the servant songs. It is the most comprehensive prophecy of both the suffering and the glory of the Lord's Messiah that you will find anywhere in the Old Testament. And it sheds additional light on the coming one that Moses has promised. If you remember, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. <clears throat> if you remember, after Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil <clears throat> and plunged the entire human race into sin and death, the Lord promised that there would be a, a descendant of Eve, a, a seed of Eve, who would crush the serpent's head. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham that this seed of Eve will be, be one of His descendants, and through that descendant of Abraham, God will bless all the nations of the earth. When you get to Genesis 49, you find that not only will this seed of Eve descend through Abraham, He will also descend through Isaac and Jacob, and specifically, Jacob's son, Judah. Later on, King David is uh, given a prophecy uh, that one of his own offspring, uh, God will raise up one of his own offspring to be a king over an eternal kingdom. Uh, in Moses, at the end of his ministry in Deuteronomy, he tells the people that God will send a greater prophet than him. He's the great prophet because it's through him God gave the law to his people. But God is going to send a prophet even greater than him that they should look forward to, and when he comes, they need to listen to him. Uh, later on in Daniel, uh, this great king that God promised to David uh, is referred to as the anointed one, and we transliterate that directly from Hebrew into English as the Messiah. Uh, we've already seen here in Isaiah that the Lord's special servant, the Messiah, will be born of a virgin and named Emmanuel, which means God among us. In Isaiah 9, we learned that He will be a son given to us and a child born to us who will be a mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 11, we're told that He will be both the root 
and shoot of Jesse's family tree. And of course, Jesse was the father of King David, to whom the Messianic prophecy was given. And uh, this uh, Messiah who comes, he will be a descendant of Jesse and David. He'll be a shoot in the family tree. But there is some sense in which he will also be the originator of it, the root of the family tree at the exact same time. This servant of the Lord Isaiah speaks of is the fulfillment of the promise to Eve and Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel, and he will resolve the greatest riddle of the Old Testament. Over 700 years before the prophecy in Isaiah that we're going to look at back in, 14, in the 1440s B.C., God gave Moses a partial, partial glimpse of His visible glory, and Exodus 34 uh, describes it this way, Then the Lord passed in front of Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, those words, I don't know about you, but those words to me sound very encouraging at first that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger with us and abounding in loving kindness. That's wonderful. But at the end, there is a dilemma created, right? Uh, how can God forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet at the same time by no means leave the guilty unpunished? If He forgives the guilty, then by definition they'll go unpunished, uh, but if He punishes the guilty because He'll no, by no means leave them unpunished, they, they aren't forgiven. Like, how can you have both at the same time? It appears uh, to, at first glance to be something that you can't have both ways. Either people are guilty and they're punished for it, or they're forgiven. How can both things be true? That's the riddle of Exodus 34, and it was the greatest riddle of the Old Testament. And the Mosaic Law didn't answer the riddle for uh, those who worship the Lord. The Mosaic law didn't resolve it because though the blood of those animal sacrifices provided a temporary covering for sin, they could never permanently take away sin. And the people who offered those sacrifices were reminded of that as they offered the same sacrifices over and over and over again year in and year out. In their hearts, they knew that if a God-appointed substitute was going to permanently take away their sins, that substitute would have to have a resemblance closer to them than an animal not made in the image of God. And here in Isaiah 53, the answer to that great riddle is finally given. The prophesied servant of the Lord will voluntarily offer himself as a guilt offering in the place of his people. And for the Lord's part, he will be pleased to crush the servant, putting him to grief if he'll render his soul as a guilt offering for the sins and transgressions and iniquities of those God loves. Now, that is wonderful news, uh, that this is finally, you know, we get more details here of the coming Messiah. The great riddle of the Old Testament is resolved. For us as Christians, we look at this as one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament where the gospel uh, is given, and yet there's a problem in the New Testament. There's a massive problem with this. And the problem is this, when the servant came, not only was he rejected and despised by his own people, in addition to that, the very people who knew the Old Testament best misunderstood his messianic work. And this misunderstanding about the Lord's Messiah was so pervasive that it wasn't just a problem with Messiah's enemies, 
His own followers didn't understand His work. In Luke 24, we find the Lord Jesus uh, speaking privately with two of His own followers. They're on the road to Emmaus. This is after He's uh, risen from the dead. And uh, even though He's with two of His followers, uh, His followers were uh, supernaturally prevented from recognizing Him, so they think they're talking to a stranger. And they lament to Him as a stranger about the way that Jesus of Nazareth had been killed by the Sanhedrin and the Romans, and uh, they lament because it was he, he who they were hoping would finally be the deliverer of Israel. And after they pour out their grieving hearts to the Lord Jesus, listen to how Jesus responds to them. O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? And then Luke records, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in the Old Testament. So, according to Jesus, the work of Messiah can be outlined uh, with a very basic two-part outline. His career comes in two parts, first suffering, then glory, first humiliation, then exaltation, first the cross, then the crown. They should have understood these things because the prophets spoke about them. Uh, later on that same day, Jesus went to the house in Emmaus where more of His followers were meeting, and when He revealed Himself to them, He said these words, uh, "'These are My words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which were written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms,' that's the threefold division of the Old Testament, "'must be fulfilled.'" Then Luke adds, "'He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said to them, "'Thus it is written,' that Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. See, the problem, as identified by Jesus, is that their messianic theology had a gaping hole in it. Uh, they had a messianic theology of Messiah being glorious and being a king and uh, Israel benefiting from His glorious kingship, uh, but they had no understanding of Messiah's suffering. And that wasn't just a problem with the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. It was a problem among Jesus' own disciples. This is why when the apostle Peter writes to the churches, he says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Messiah within them was indicating when He predicted, here's the prediction, the sufferings of Messiah and the glories to follow. You can't understand the work of the Lord's servant if you don't understand that He had to suffer before He entered into His glory. Uh, just as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself uh, is the two-part outline that Jesus says uh, explains the law and the prophets, in the same way for the work of Messiah, we have a two-part outline, first suffering, then glory. And scattered throughout the Old Testament, you find prophecies of His suffering and prophecies of His glory. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you find prophecies of His suffering and His glory together explained in such specific detail as you have here in Isaiah 53? So, let's read the text together again. Uh, and before I read it, I just want to remind you one more time 
that the first rule of Isaiah 53 is that it doesn't start in Isaiah 53. What most Christians think of as Isaiah 53 is a servant song of Isaiah that actually begins back in Isaiah 52, verse 13. So, let's pick up the text there. Uh, In Isaiah 52, verse 13, the Lord introduces the great servant He will send this way, "'Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so His appearance was marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men. Thus He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of Him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand.'" Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him." He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth." But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong." because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This servant song comes to us in five stanzas of three verses each, and today we come to the fifth stanza where we meet once again this person identified as the Lord's servant. Uh, In the first stanza, he is the shocking servant of the Lord, both shocking in his exaltation and shocking in the suffering he will go through. In the second stanza, uh, he is the rejected servant of the Lord who comes to his own people, but they don't receive him. They reject him. In the third stanza, he is the suffering servant of the Lord who is crushed to bear away our iniquities. In the fourth stanza, he is the slaughtered servant of the Lord who's voluntarily cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of His people. And in this final stanza, He is the risen servant of the Lord who is satisfied by the results of His suffering. 
Now, one of the most important things to pay attention to when you're interpreting this uh, servant song is who the speaker is, because there's actually more than one speaker. There's two speakers. At the very beginning of the song, in the first stanza, the speaker is the Lord, and He's introducing the greatest of all time servant He will send into the world. But starting in Isaiah 53, verse 1, you get a different speaker. And, and all the verb tenses that are speaking about the servant, they change to the past tense, even though what Isaiah is prophesying about this uh, servant of the Lord is yet future. It, it's a prophecy about a future day, and yet the speaker talks about everything in the past tense, and the speaker also changes to use personal pronouns that are first-person plural, we, us, our. And what you have going on is this. This is a prophecy of a future generation of Israel where you have a future uh, Jewish man speaking on behalf of his nation and looking back at uh, the Lord's servant that they rejected and lamenting that they got it all wrong. It, we, we, we got it all wrong. We looked at him, and we thought the Lord was striking him down, and indeed the Lord did strike him down, but not for the reason we thought. We thought the Lord was striking him down for blasphemy when in reality he was bearing away our sins and iniquities. And uh, that ties in with Zechariah chapter 12, uh, where there is a prophecy of a coming day when Israel will look on him whom they've pierced and grieve over their national history of unbelief. So, to clarify what I mean about these verses and about the future as prophesied in the Old Testament, we need to say it this way. There is only one nation in Scripture that is prophesied uh, that as a nation will repent and unanimously be saved, and that is a future generation of Israel. Yes, God is saving individual Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation, but no Gentile nation as a nation will be saved, including America. Uh, and as for the Jews, we could say it this way, yes, many Jews have come to faith in Christ over the centuries, but they have always been the minority among their own brethren in their generations. But a day is coming when all Israel will be saved. And that is a, a glorious prophecy found in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 10, that we look forward to. So, as we begin this fifth stanza, in verse 10, what you have is the conclusion to the lament, the repentant lament, of a future generation of Israel uh, who sees that they interpreted the Lord's servant's coming all wrong. And what this is, maybe another way we could say it is, what you're seeing is the conclusion to a future generation of Israel's confession of faith. And notice that in their confession of faith, they not only confess the death of Christ for their sins, they also are going to confess His resurrection from the dead, because that's what we find in this stanza. Uh, look again at verse 10. Uh, on the one hand, the Lord used His providence to ensure that His servant received an honorable burial, because He hadn't done any violence, there was no deceit in His mouth. And yet, on the other hand, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Uh, in this final stanza, you begin to get the answers to many of the questions previous stanzas have brought up, 
but not uh, brought to conclusion. Uh, perhaps the biggest question raised by earlier stanzas is in the first stanza. How is it that someone who is the greatest of the Lord's servant, who the Lord says ahead of time they will prosper in the work God gives them, how can someone so exalted and also so successful, how can someone like that go through such suffering? Are they just a good person who ends up at the wrong place at the wrong time? And the answer of the text is no. His death is actually by design. Uh, his purpose in coming and living and dying was so that through His work, and, and notice this, primarily through His work, not His teaching, but primarily through His own work, people can have their sins atoned for. And His story, even though it's tragic, it doesn't end with His death. It doesn't even end with His honorable burial, which is a vindication by the Lord. It ends with Him uh, rising from the dead and receiving a great reward. So, this rejected, uh, scourged, slaughtered man will again wear the victor's wreath. So, this song ends where it begins in the very first line by uh, the Lord announcing how His servant will be exalted. The enigma of that first stanza is resolved here. The servant becomes high and lifted up and greatly exalted precisely because he's willing to suffer and die for the sins of his people. Verse 10 begins with a contrast. I think you can see that. The opening word is the word, but even though the Lord vindicated him by giving him an honorable burial, on the other hand, verse 10, the Lord was delighted to crush him to death. Now, the reason the Lord was delighted to crush him to death was because of the way that his death would atone for the sins of people God loves. Uh, it wasn't the, in the crushing itself that the Lord found pleasure. And uh, after the service last week, uh, John Schmoyer gave me uh, an illustration I could use for this week. If you think of any illustrations for me in the future, congregation, give them to me because I'm weak in that area. Uh, uh, he, he gave me this illustration. Suppose that uh, 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 somebody told you, you know what Pastor Chris did? He sent, he, he, he took his daughter May to a complete stranger, left her in that stranger's care, and that stranger used a knife to cut her so deeply she had to get a bunch of stitches. What would you think of my fatherly care if you were told that story? Well, now imagine that I were to say, well, yes, I did take her to a stranger, but that stranger was a doctor, and the knife was a scalpel that he used to cut her open and perform a life-saving surgery, right? You would, you would think about it a little differently, and I think that's what happens with the text. There, there is enough of an adversarial relationship with this text that our secular world has that they want to look at it and, again, claim the cross was divine child abuse. But that's not what's going on here. The father wasn't pleased to crush the son because the father is somehow sadistic. That's not what's going on. He was pleased in what crushing the son would produce, namely, uh, paying the penalty for sins that we deserve. Now, for his part, the son knowingly and voluntarily surrendered his life as a guilt offering. Uh, again, he agreed with the plan. Even if you deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to confess he was an adult who was participating in this. It's not like God grabbed a little child and, uh, you know, hung him to a cross kicking and screaming. That's to say, again, to say the cross is divine child abuse is misrepresenting what the Bible says 
about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son went voluntarily, and as a result of Him being willing to offer Himself, He will see His offspring. Now, the question is, what offspring, right? Because this poor, rejected man died childless. So, we know it's not going to be physical offspring. It's spiritual offspring. Uh, It's those for whom His guilt offering satisfied the demands of God's justice so that they can be reconciled to God. He will see His offspring. The picture then of His offspring is this. You and I wandered away like rebellious, foolish sheep, but we return to the Lord as sons and daughters. Uh, and he, not only will He see His sons and daughters, He will prolong His days. Uh, last week, we looked at the Muslim view of Jesus, and just to remind you, they believe that Jesus was a great prophet, but not the Son of God, and uh, even the Quran itself claims uh, that uh, when the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus, that actually Jesus slipped away, and another man who resembled Him was hung on the cross, and then later on, uh, God assumed Jesus into heaven bodily. So, kind of like the Old Testament account of Elijah, uh, that's what the Quran says. And last week, I addressed the fact that the Quran is wrong on that point. Jesus of Nazareth did, in fact, die, and He died for a reason. He died for the transgressions of His people. Uh, So, Islam teaches that Jesus didn't die. Islam also teaches that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because He he didn't need to. They believe He was assumed into heaven. But the New Testament records not only that He did die, but also that He rose from the grave. And the resurrection is implied in this prophecy. If He died, how will He see His offspring uh, after His act of obedience? If He dies and He isn't raised, how will He prolong His days? The answer is, He rises again. That's how He sees His offspring after His death. That's how He prolongs His days after His death. It's true that the word for resurrection in Hebrew isn't in this text, but how else do you explain Him seeing His offspring? How do you explain Him prolonging His days? In verse 11, it is after His being crushed to death that He is alive to be satisfied with what His work has produced. In verse 12, It's after offering Himself as a guilt offering that He is alive to divide the booty with the strong. Back here in verse 10, when you see the good pleasure of the Lord prospering in His hand, that's also pictured in Hebrew as happening after He rises from the dead. He will take the scroll of history and unroll it as the Lord of heaven and earth. That's what Revelation teaches. So, the last half of verse 10 then reveals a resurrection from the dead, and it also expresses divine favor in the servant. Remember, in the Hebrew mind, in Hebrew culture, long life, plenty of offspring, uh, and being successful at the work God has given you, those are all seen as marks of divine favor, and uh, He will have divine blessing. So, I interpret verse 10 to be the end of the prophecy of uh, this confession of faith of a future generation of Israel, and I think it's important that it ends with them believing in the resurrection from the dead. I think there's a transition in verse 11, uh, back to the Lord speaking. That's explicit at the end of verse 11. We see the Lord uh, picks up and speaks about His servant again, and this is what He says, verse 11, "'As a result of the anguish of His soul,' He will see and be satisfied. 
by His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. Notice in the second line of verse 11, the word it is italicized. Now, when you see a word italicized in your English translation, the translators are admitting that this word is not in the original text, but we're supplying it because we think it makes the meaning of what's going on easier for an English-speaking audience. And uh, I think I've said this before in a previous stanza, I think it would be better to leave the italicized words out and to have us wrestle with the text, because this is Hebrew poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, there's a lot more wrestling with what the text is portraying, because there's fewer words. It's not a historical narrative. And uh, it's actually good for us to wrestle a little bit with the text. And so, if we take the word out, yes, it is more awkward in English. I admit that. It, do it doesn't make as nice of a translation for English readers but it does help us reckon with the text. And the question we need to reckon with in verse 11 is, what is it that the servant of the Lord sees that he's so satisfied with? Well, we were already given the answer back in verse 10. It's his offspring. He will see his offspring, verse 10. So, I take that to mean that the satisfaction the servant enjoys after his resurrection is looking at the great assembly of sons and daughters that his atoning death has given birth to. Uh, he will look out and see people from every tribe and race and uh, language group and nation, and he will be pleased. Uh, think about it this way. The joy that was set before Jesus, before He went to the cross, was the joy of the people He would redeem. The servant of the Lord takes great delight and joy and satisfaction in the people that He has brought from death to life. Now, in the second half of verse 11, when you see the word knowledge there, that word knowledge is a Hebrew synonym for the prosperity that we found back in uh, 52 verse 13. Um, and what it refers to is this, the Lord's servant will know exactly what needs to be done to reconcile people to God and exactly how to go about doing it so that He can prosper in the work the Lord has given him. And his success is the success of justifying people. In Hebrew, that word for justify means to declare righteous. Many people will be acquitted on the day of judgment, not because they're not guilty. They're as guilty as sin. I pardon the… They're, they're guilty of sin and they're, as guilt, they're guilty as sin. Okay, sorry for the expression there. But the point is, people will be acquitted, and it won't be because they're not guilty. It'll be because their penalty has already previously been paid for by the Lord's servant. Notice also at the end of verse 11, that word bear in the last line, he will bear away their iniquities. Uh, we saw this word back in verse 4, and what it pictured in the Hebrew mind, this is a word that's only used in the Mosaic Law to speak about a very special, unique, once-a-year sacrifice offered by the high priest. Once a year, the high priest offered a goat, but they didn't actually slay the goat and put it on the altar. What he would do is he would put his hands on the head of the goat and pray on the, over the, confess in prayer on the head of that goat all the sins of the nation of Israel for the previous year, and then one of the other priests would take the goat, and they would set it free outside the tabernacle or later the temple to wander out into the wilderness and to bear away, to carry away 
the sins of the nation. And so, for a Hebrew speaker who knows the law of Moses, when they see that word, that's what that's going to conjure up in their mind. He will bear away, he will carry away our iniquities. That's what the righteous one did. He carried away our sins by becoming our guilt offering. Verse 11, then, becomes one of the fullest statements of the substitutionary atoning death that you can find anywhere in the Old Testament. The servant knows uh, the need to be met, and he knows how to go about meeting that need. As the righteous one, he's acceptable to God. As the servant, he is the one God has appointed for this task. Even though he's not infected with the contagion of sin like we are, he still identifies with us by taking on humanity. He accomplishes the task negatively by carrying away our iniquities and positively by providing a way for us to be justified. Now, some people, especially contemporary men and women trained in the law, find verse 11 uh, to be a very difficult verse because they argue that it's not just for the righteous person to suffer and for the wicked person to be uh, acquitted. And I confess that seems unfair at first glance, but you have to look at the details of what's going on. What was God supposed to do when the people He loved had all turned astray and rebelled from Him. His law demanded a punishment, but if He punishes them, it will, it will mean the destruction of the very people He loves. And so, to satisfy His justice, God does something that I, I agree at first glance it can look unjust. What He does is He punishes His righteous servant, the only one who hasn't gone astray. But in the progress of biblical revelation, we learn that this servant is none other than God Himself come in human flesh. And so, what God does is if, if, his, if the demands of His justice can only be met by Him dying, then so be it, right? He's going to come, take on human flesh, dwell among us, and die for our sins. And so, what that means is that this act that looks like it's unjust at first is actually the aggrieved party paying the penalty uh, for uh, the, the person who commit the crime in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's paying the penalty Himself, which leads us then to the climax of the whole song, verse 12. We read this, therefore, this is the Lord speaking, therefore, because He bears away their iniquities, I will allot Him a portion with the great, and He will divide the booty with the strong, because He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sins of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that is the most underwhelming, disappointing climax I have ever heard, ever. It's horrible. The greatest servant of the Lord gives himself up to torture and death for people who deserve death, by the way, and all he gets is he gets to share a portion uh, with the many. He gets to divide the booty as an equal with strong persons. I don't know whether they're spiritual persons, people who were great in human history. As an equal, he gets to, you know, divide some booty with them. That's horrible. That's like saying uh, uh, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, and, and not only that, it's not just the stats. It's not just the championships. It's the way he went about it, right? Michael Jordan was poetry in motion. I mean, it's just beautiful to watch. And so, because he's that great, we're going to allot him a portion on the all-star team along with those other guys. And, um, 
he can divide the booty equally as an equal with, uh, you know, Paxton and Horace Grant and all those other guys. It's just, that just doesn't seem right. I don't like it at all. So I started looking at it in Hebrew, and I, you know, I was like, well, I, I, it could go either way. And I'm like, I don't like this at all. So what I did was, I'm, all right, forget it. I'm going to go see what the rabbis say about this. Uh, in the 200s BC, uh, there was a group of Jewish rabbis in Alexandria, Egypt, who translated the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek because Greek had become the lingua franca of the ancient Near East. And it wasn't just because it was the lingua franca, it's also because their kids were growing up speaking Greek. They knew Greek better than Hebrew, and they wanted to have a, a, a well-translated uh, Greek translation for their people. And this is the way they translate uh, verse 12. Um, Therefore, he shall inherit the many, and he shall divide the spoils of the mighty. And my response to that is, amen. That's more like it. I like that better than my New American Standard. Uh, in fact, uh, of all the English translations, I think the Holman Christian Standard translates this best by rendering it this way. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. That's the climax. That's the uh, exaltation. He'll receive the many as his reward. His sons and daughters, his spiritual sons and daughters will be his reward. Now, who are the mighty here? Uh, it could go a number of different ways. I interpret the mighty to be this. What happens to his sons and daughters uh, um, after uh, the final judgment, the, the Lord brings in new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem? What happens to his sons and daughters? They have perfected souls and they are given resurrection bodies that are incorruptible, imperishable, undefiled, will never get sick, will never age, and will never die again. Now, I don't know about you, but those are pretty mighty people, right? So, I don't look very mighty right now. You know, I'm not that impressive in the pulpit. I get it. But in the future, I will be a mighty one, right, with a new body, a perfected soul, and you will be too. And I believe those are the mighty people that He receives as His spoil. Now, let me take just a moment and talk about what I just did there, because I, I think it's worthwhile for us to talk about this. This is something very important in our Christian faith we need to reckon with. When I face difficulty, problems like how to interpret uh, Isaiah 53 verse 12, um, I've asked other pastors about this. How should I handle it? And I have received advice from some other pastors that basically says this, uh, look, Chris, just choose whatever you think is the best English translation you can to preach from. Don't slow down your sermons with a bunch of word studies from Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and whatever you do, don't disagree with the translation you're preaching from, because if you do that, and you pull out your knowledge of Greek and Hebrew you learned in seminary as the trump card in front of your people, what you're doing is you're you, you, are, you are undermining their confidence in their English translation, and you're taking their English Bible away from them, right? That's the advice I've received. Now, if you've listened to any of my preaching, you know that I haven't taken that advice. And here's the reason why. Here's the alternate way I would like us to look at that. The fact is that the Bible, uh, the English Bibles that we read, 
did not descend to us from heaven in English for us to pick up and read. They come to us in the form of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, and somebody had to translate them into our language. Those are facts. I would rather reckon with that and have you be aware of that and wrestle with that than, you know, short-circuit that understanding. And here's, here's the main thing. The last thing I want to do is take your English Bible away from you, but I don't view what I'm doing up here as subtraction. I'm not trying to take your English Bible away from you. I view it as addition. I'm trying to help you understand your English Bible better, but I also want to let you know, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to do Greek and Hebrew word studies. It's all available for you in English. I personally, I prefer Logos Bible software. You can look up the meaning of Hebrew and Greek words. Not only that, you can look up grammar and syntax. You don't have to, uh, uh, to just take what I'm saying here. Uh, you can go look this up for yourself. You don't just have to believe me. You, there are reference tools you can use to look up uh, the meaning of these Greek and Hebrew words and uh, what the relationships are grammatically and the syntax of a sentence and what that adds up to for yourself. There are great tools out there. So, I'm trying to help you understand your English translation, and I'm trying to encourage you to use tools that help you better understand the text. Good uh, study notes from a good study Bible. If you're interested in translation, uh, I think I've recommended more than once up here, the Net Bible. And you can look up the Net Bible online, and it has massive footnotes where the translators talk about why they decided to translate this word or this phrase the way they did. And it gives you a whole explanation, including what the Hebrew or Greek words are, depending on if you're in the Old or New Testament. There are great tools out there. And uh, in this case, I do think the New American Standard got it wrong. Uh, His reward is the many He's redeemed. He's not going to divide the booty with the strong as equals. He's going to divide the strong as His booty. That's what's going to happen. And then look at the, the end. Again, we have a restatement of why He receives this reward. It's because He was willing to be counted as a transgressor and He was willing to bear away the sins of many as a way of interceding for the transgressors. That word interceding is a great translation, but I kind of prefer an old English word, interpose. He interposed for the transgressors. I know that's… nobody uses interpose in street language anymore, but I like it because in the relational realm, it pictures two people that have been alienated and a person who comes between them to help them reconcile. This is why we call the Lord Jesus Christ a mediator between God and man. So, Isaiah 53, then, is the clearest Old Testament explanation you will find of the gospel. It is the clearest explanation all in one place of the suffering and the glory that Messiah will endure. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the details of this prophecy, right? The piercing, being scourged, uh, being assigned the grave, a grave with wicked men, but being with a rich man in his death, he fulfilled the details of this prophecy in the way that he uh, lived and went through, voluntarily went through an unjust trial and died and rose again. And this text is also the wonderful promise of a future generation of Israel that turns to the Lord in repentance and faith. This is their confession in verses 1 through 10. But this confession of a future generation of Israel it has to be 
your confession. You must confess your rebellion for what it is, that you've gone astray like a foolish sheep, uh, that you have transgressions. You've knowingly transgressed God's law. You have iniquitous desires in your heart that cause you to find attractive and to be tempted by things that God says are evil and and, uh, ugly and polluted. You have your own sins that need to be atoned for. And so, you have to confess that and appropriate the benefits of this atoning death by believing in and following the Lord's servant who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main application of Isaiah 53. Well, let's pray.